0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 11. Amen. We love God's word always excited to open the book. Uh, Today and in the coming weeks, we're going to be working our way through some of the scriptures that are the most influential and formative in my life and in the vision and mission of Love City Church. Uh, Our strong conviction as we planned and we laid the groundwork for planting Love City was that instead of focusing on what things we think are most important, because everybody has emphasis, everybody has things that kind of their, their pet projects, their pet issues, they're the things that they like to emphasize, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but when it comes to planning a church and deciding, and and trying to figure out what it is God is calling us to do, why are we going to exist? What we wanted to do is find out what Jesus and what the Scriptures had to say about what is most important, and then we built around and focused on those things. These verses that we're going to read today, uh, I think. I would call them. I would call them boil it down verses. Um, and what they do is they point us to what matters most. There is much to consider in, in all of the counsel of all of God's word. There are many, many things that we could look at, think about, emphasize, and focus on. Yes, there's lots of things covered. Uh, I'm Talking about 66 books, right? And there's, there's a lot going on. Of course, it's one narrative, beginning to end, that talks about God creating us, His people, us falling, rebelling from Him, and then. The rest is recording his rescue plan to have us back through Jesus and his finished work on the cross, but there's a lot that's covered. Even in just the New Testament, the epistles, uh, the, the instructions for how to live in light of the fact that Jesus has rescued us um, because of the cross. There's a lot that we could talk about. However, if you look and you pay attention, there are certain sets of verses and there are certain themes that come up again and again, and it seems that if no matter, no matter who it is that's speaking, whether it be... Uh, one of the gospel writers recording the words of King Jesus himself, or it's one of it's one of those that were charged with the, the the monumental task of writing the rest of the epistles, whether it be Paul or James or Peter, when they're given an opportunity to say, "Here is what if we're going to focus on one. If you've got one thing that you can pay attention to, you know, I, I don't know how you guys are. I'm, I'm pretty one track minded. I don't I don't do very good multitasking. I know most of you ladies are better at it, but." you know, Natalie knows if, if I'm on the phone, it's, it's not because I'm not interested in what she's saying, but it is completely useless to try to start another conversation with me, right? It's not happening. And, and it's probably just man syndrome. I think most of you males can relate to what I'm talking about. Women somehow, you know, can be cooking, managing children, talking on the phone and washing dishes all at the same time and, and not in any way be stressed. You know, me, I'm, I melt down at that point. So I'm going to do one thing, really well, get that done, and then I'm going to do another thing, right? <laughs> don't, don't try to make me juggle. I won't do well. So um, I think that principle, you, you see that somewhat in the scriptures, and I think that all of the other things that could be considered, all the other things that we could deal with, uh, these scriptures boil down and get us to the point that if we focus on a, a few very key things, everything else will fall into place. And uh, let's just read together, and, and we'll see if that's true or not, Okay. So, verses 11 through 24, we're in 1 John 3, okay? For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren, He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. And He in Him, we know by this that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. Amen. Uh, so let's jump back up to verse 11, and we'll work through this together uh, and ask for the help of God's Holy Spirit to illuminate His truth to us. There's so much here. Again, I, I, I know I say this all the time, I'm like a broken record, but... The... This is what, um, 24 minus 11, I mean, we're talking 13, 14 verses here. You could, you could spend so much time here and not exhaust the depth of, of what could be found. Um, like a miner down a mine shaft searching for gold, man, you could just keep digging in this and come out with precious, precious truth. Um, so we're going to do the best we can um, in the few minutes that we have together. So don't think we'll exhaust this set of verses. Um, And that's probably true every time we open the Scriptures. Uh, So verse 11, uh, it says, For this message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Um, Very basically, here's what we're, you know, there are those today that think that the, the message of God, or the relevance of the Scriptures, or the authority of the Scriptures, or what matters most, that that changes with the arc of the evolution of culture, right? That as we get smarter, better, faster, stronger, however, you know, we tend to think that we're in this upward arc of intelligence, and I'm not sure that that's always true. You know, people think that that God has to evolve with us, that God's word has to, it has to change and adapt with us. No. The message has been the same from the beginning. The authority of God and the scriptures he wrote are the same from the beginning. And this is the message. This is the message from the beginning that we should love one another. That sounds basic. It's not. We're going to find out as we keep going here why. Verse 12, Not as Cain, who was the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Here's the thing. If you go back to Genesis, uh, you can read the story. There's debate over the specifics of why God rejected Cain's offering. Uh, Some think it's because it wasn't an animal sacrifice and what is required for the covering of sins is blood because Leviticus is clear that life is in the blood. Some people think that's the case. However, it's not clearly explained in Genesis, so I think it's dangerous to assert that we know for sure what's going on there. It could have just been a heart issue with Cain, but here's the reality and here's what is clear from that set of verses is that the nature of sin and rebellion has not changed much, that from that point to, to today people are still doing what Cain did. And because of pride, um, he wanted to worship and he wanted to offer sacrifices to God his way. It is clear that there was something God was not pleased with in the way that Cain was bringing his offering, whether it be something in his heart, his posture, um, or if it was something with the offering itself, God was pleased with Abel's offering. He was not pleased with Cain's. And Cain, instead of humbling himself before God and finding out what is it that would take what, what would it take for me to be obedient in this? He said, got angry. And then it says he went and had a talk with his brother. Uh, 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 so we can see in that that he's even, he's going to try to then drag Abel in and say, hold on, who does, you know, God's already making us give offerings. How's he going to be so specific? Why is he so picky? Don't you think I'm right, Abel? And clearly Abel didn't go for it because he's like, hey, bro, <clears throat> God's God. You're Cain. Shut up and do what God says, Right? Um, I'm now paraphrasing, and you will not find this in Genesis, but it's clear something happened in the conversation where Abel didn't just go along with what Cain had to say, because then what happened? Cain kills Abel. Cain kills Abel. And so uh, all of that root, all, the root of the anger that got Cain to the point where he was able to murder his brother, it came out of pride, and it came out of rebellion, disobedience to God, and unwillingness to yield himself to whatever it was that God was requiring of him, which was unwise, and it's unwise for us today. There are many people that want to worship God the way they want to worship God. You need to understand. Hear me, please. That's not how it works. See, we've been told too much and too often that you're the special one, and and everyone else may have to do it that way, but you can do it this way. You do what you want. You do it different. You're special. Well, at least you're showing up. No. No. God gives us very clear commands. He gives us very clear ways in which to approach him, and our joy is to obey those, not to come up with our own quasi-secondary plan. Well, I know this isn't what you said, God, but, you know, it's close, and I like it better. It reeks of pride. Don't follow the way of Cain. Follow the way of Abel. Other than getting your head smashed with a rock, don't do that, okay? Uh, verse 13, okay? Uh, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Many of you have become Christians and um, you've been super excited about it. You're, 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 you're still thrilled with the fact that the gospel is true for you. That no matter how deep your sins were, no matter how many your failings were, that the blood of Christ covers your sin and that he's willing to forget those and bring you into his family. You're super excited about the gospel and about, about the fact that you're a part of God's family. But then you realize quickly... That not everyone was as excited as you are, right? Anybody had that experience? Um, Not even necessarily that other Christians are not as excited as you are, though that's also a possibility and tragic, but mostly that non-Christians may not be excited as you are when you begin to share, hey, I've become a Christian, because oftentimes they have ideas in their head about what that means. Uh, Some of you have faced real hatred and negativity from family and friends or coworkers because you openly follow Jesus Christ. And some of you have wondered if you're doing something wrong because of the fierce opposition you've faced since becoming a Christian. Some of you have even looked at other Christians who don't face any opposition as a as result of their allegiance to King Jesus, and you've, you've been tempted to envy them. Like, why does it seem like I'm getting all the crap storm, and they get to just skip through the daisies? We're both Christians. What's the deal here? Uh... I would answer your temptation to envy the Christian that seems to have no struggle. First of all, I would say we, we all struggle. And so don't, don't fall into the trap of believing that um, anybody is without struggle. Sometimes some of us are just better at hiding it than others. Get in a community group. Um, you, you done with that yet? It doesn't matter. I'm going to keep saying it. Um, <clears throat> So don't believe that, but, but also when it comes to envying someone, that, and maybe they do legitimately actually have it easier than you, less opposition in their life because of their allegiance to Jesus, here's my, here's my one word answer to your temptation to envy them. Don't. Don't. Because the exact opposite is really true. Jesus said in John 15 that if they persecuted him, did they persecute Jesus? Yes, they did. Here's what Jesus said. If they persecuted me, surely they're going to persecute you. So, right off the bat, we have to understand that that temptation to feel like am I screwing up? Is God not showing up? What's the deal here? Why am I having all this? Why am I having all this backlash because I'm a Christian? Look, man, that's part of the deal. That's why we can't run around here telling people, "Hey, you should become a Christian." Because then, you know, everything will smell like vanilla all the time. It's going to be great. You'll have all the money you need. You'll never be sick, and it's going to be wonderful. Listen, man, God does bless us. God does heal us. God does provide for us. God is faithful and perfect, but life is not going to be perfect because you're a Christian. There's a day when we reach perfection. We have that promise, but it's not in this life. We look forward to that glorious homecoming where every tear is wiped away, all sickness is vanquished, sin is defeated, death is no more. A day is coming, dear one, and we can look forward to it with with anxious expectation, but in the meantime... Uh, we got to keep our head at least enough here to fulfill the mission and the reason he gave us breath to begin with. Amen? Amen. So don't, don't envy those that seem to have it easier than you. If you have faced opposition and trial and difficulty since becoming a Christian, then I want to say this to you. Press on, dear one. Press on. And don't feel like you're, you're alone in that. As a matter of fact, Jesus promised it would happen. Peter also said, don't be surprised. He uses that very language. Don't be, stop being surprised. Stop being surprised. When a fiery trial comes upon you, you will struggle. You will go through things. Because here's the truth, and here's the reality. Yes, God is glorified when he blesses his kids. God is glorified when his children prosper in the midst of everyone else is in recession, struggling, freaking out mentally and emotionally. God is glorified when his children stand fast and prosper in the midst of that devastation. But you know what? And, 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 he's, and he's, he's glorified in the healing of his children. Yes, But God is also glorified when one of his children perseveres through sickness by faith and stands the whole time and says, it does not matter how this ends, but God will be glorified. You will hear nothing but praise from my mouth, because in this world I came naked, and naked I'm going to go. God is glorified both ways. And so I say to him, in whatever the situation is, do as you see fit. However he could be most glorified, do that with me, because I'm more concerned with his glory than I am with my comfort or my preference. And this is the call. We're gonna get here in a minute and you're gonna really, you think I'm unhinged now, wait, wait till we get to 1 John three sixteen. You wonder what's wrong with me? That verse right there. That verse right there is what's wrong with me because it says that we know love because he laid down his life for us. The call in return is to do that. The call in return is to think like I just described to you and some of you are sitting here thinking, this guy is nuts. How, how can he care more about God's glory than, than whether or not his kids get cancer? You know what? I don't ever want that to happen and, 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 and it, would, it would be, I can't think of something more emotionally difficult than my kids struggling because I love them, I'm their daddy and I want to protect them, I want to raise them, I want to see them serve Jesus but if, if, I'm just, I went straight to the heart to the worst thing I could think of for me, okay, one of my babies getting sick, how am I going to handle that, am I going to rail against God and decide that, listen man, I know better than you do how this should go, you better heal them, no, I'm going to say, God, I trust you. And however, you will be most glorified. If you'll be most glorified by by people watching my family endure this difficulty and this trial and to persevere through this by faith and trust you in your goodness in the midst of this difficulty, if that's how you receive most glory, then be glorified. Not my will, but yours be done. God, if you receive the most glory by healing them miraculously so that we can shout from the rooftops that you are the God who heals, be glorified. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's the truth. And that's what we're called to. So quit freaking out that you're suffering. Seek to have the same mind as the apostles in Acts 5. They rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. The apostles are dragged in uh, by the Sanhedrin and and they say, listen, you guys got to quit talking about Jesus. And just for good measure, they beat him, but they're afraid to try to keep him. They can't kill him because they know that they, they have favor with the people. And so, so they let him go. And it says that these guys, these apostles, these men that walked with Jesus, that they walked out of there happy and full of joy that they were considered, hear this, worthy to suffer for his name. Woo! Now that's a way to think right there that I would be counted worthy to suffer. For his name mm, mm-mm. that's good right there that's the right that's the right way to think that's the right way to think. I am much more worried for you if you have not suffered difficulty because of who your king is in this world the the for the christian we're really we're like somebody that's Walking through a huge crowd of Bengals fans down at Paul Brown Stadium wearing a Pittsburgh Steeler jersey. That's, so here's the thing. Here's what I'm trying to get. I'm trying to paint a picture of for you to understand how ridiculous it is to not have pushback being a Christian in this world. All right, so just think about how it's going to go for you. Say so you just get a wild hair. and So you, you, you get the, you know, the brightest black and yellow Pittsburgh jersey you can. You toss that thing on. And you're going to go down and find the biggest crowd of meanest-looking, drunkest Bengals fans at the tailgate party, and you're going to go walk straight through the middle of them and start cheering, hey, you guys are cheering for the wrong team, go Steelers. How's that going to go for you? Unless you're fast, real fast, or real tough, you're probably going to get the slobber knocked out of your mouth, right? It's, it's probably not going to go good for you. And here's the thing, that, that situation's not that different to what we're in every day as Christians because. Uh, they're not going to pick you up because you come in and disagree with their worldview about the Bengals being the best, and they're not going to pick you up on their shoulders and start hip-hip-hooraying and saying, yeah, you're great, and parade you around the parking lot. They're probably going to grab a hold of you and do something to you. And um, would you be surprised by that? It wouldn't be surprising. See, we walk around with a Team Jesus jersey. We should, all the time. And many around us, they're sporting their own jerseys, jerseys that say things like get money or the sexual pleasure jersey or the entertainment jersey or the feel good about myself jersey, you know, whatever their God is, they're on a team. There's somebody they worship. Uh, Oftentimes it's themselves or some other false idol. And, And here's the thing. We want them to change teams. There's a natural friction there. And so there's going to be some opposition. See, everyone else is they're 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 happy to say you know, um, oh you you worship you worship sex and sexuality that's that's cool my uh you know my god is career and money and status but that's cool you you worship sex over there and I'm gonna worship money and status and how, you know what everyone thinks of me um, but then we the Christian we're called to come and to have truth and love boldly proclaimed out of our mouths and say hold on both of you we we have to say this to be honest and to be loving you're wrong. Well, that's, hold on, that's not a very high ethic in in American culture today, to say you're wrong. You're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to let everybody think what they think and do what they do, and you're supposed to just back off, and and who are you to say? Who are you to judge? But that's not loving. It's not loving for me to let somebody just continue to worship sex and sexuality in the human body when that's not a real God, and when that God's going to let them down. And the path that that God is going to try to draw them down, it always leads in death and despair. If I love them, I'll stand up to them. If I love them, I'll run in the middle of all those other nasty idol jerseys with my Jesus jersey and say, Yes, I don't care what you do to me. I love you. Serve Jesus. Reject these false gods. They're not going to give you what they promise, they're going to disappoint you. There's only one true, real God who's powerful enough and faithful enough to be worthy of your worship it's King Jesus. I should just get Jesus sewed on the back of all my shirts just to rile people up. Amen. Honestly, I should walk with such anointing in my life that I don't need a Jesus patch on my shirt. That's the bottom line. That's what I'm trying to get us to, that we walk in such love and such joy, such peace and anointing of God's presence on our life that people need not see a Jesus patch, that they have to stop in the midst of their agitated, stressed out world and say, hold on a second. (laughs) You, You walk different than everyone else. I don't mean gate or length of step. I mean, just the way you exist is different. I haven't been nice to you, yet you're loving to me. What's the deal with that? We walk and live in the midst of this dark culture the way Jesus did. We're going to have people that are going to want to know why, but we're also going to have people that will oppose us. Don't be surprised. You may be passed over for a promotion because you're a Christian. What are you gonna do? You gonna whine about it and get less bold about the gospel? Or are you gonna walk out that day going, Woo! I count it all joy that I, that I would be considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. We always have two possible reactions. You know which one I, I think I'm proposing is right, and I think that the scriptures would lead us to. Um, I'm worried for you. If you do not, on a regular basis, experience opposition because you're a Christian, your Jesus jersey might be inside out. Or you might just have another one on. This world is hostile to a group of people that say, we know the truth and we want you to believe that truth. So to roll with Jesus is to invite opposition. But hallelujah, even through that struggle and through that conflict, love can win out. And it does often. As as many of you know. Verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Verse 14, here we see again an inextricable and unable to be taken apart connection between God and his people. What does it say? Let's read it again. How do we know if we've passed out of death into life? How do we know if we've become somebody that really belongs to Jesus? Here's what he says because we love the brethren. I I try to, sometimes I, I try to be gentle with this because I know that there's this deeply ingrained deal. And I don't know where it started, I don't know how long it's been around, I don't know if it's just here in America, but we, we like to always talk in terms of um, our personal relationship with Jesus. And listen, there is a personal element to serving Christ. He invites us to relate to him, God invites us to relate to him as a father, so that is very personal. However, the, the issue with that language is that it can, it can make it seem like just us and God, that, that that's that's what's important, and, and maybe secondarily or third down the totem pole of importance would be some type of a relationship with his people. That is not the way the scriptures present the way this works. How do you know if you've passed from death into life? How can you be sure? Let me tell you that you love the brethren. Wow. So what you're telling me is, my love for you is an indicator. It's a litmus test. that helps me to understand yes or no. Have I really experienced the change that I claim? Is who I say my king is, is that, is that real or am I deceived? Do I love the brethren? Here's the thing. We have, to, we have to just go ahead and quit saying that you don't have to be a part of a church to be a Christian. We just need to quit saying that. We need to quit letting people say it. Because... Even though it's technically possible to put faith in Jesus and his finished work and never be a part of a local church, it is clearly not what God intended to be normative. Here's the thing. People are all freaked out about, uh, you know, if, if I'm committed to a local church, that I, you know, I don't want to be involved in some type of cult or whatever, but here's the thing. We are saved. Jesus Christ died for his bride, the church. We are saved to the church, and the church is expressed in local bodies where you come together so that there's accountability, so that there's a unity of mission, and so that there's encouragement. This is the model. This is the way that it goes. And and I realize there there are situations and places where people are persecuted. Look, somebody could come to faith in Christ in a jail cell just before they die and never are able to connect and plug in to a local church. I understand that, and I agree with that, yes. However, when those are not the circumstances, it is clearly, clearly in the Scriptures, not the normative pattern for you to have a personal, me and Jesus special relationship aside and away from God's people. It's not, it's just not, it's not what God intended, okay? Um, ladies, help me preach this, okay? Because here's the problem. Some, some dillweed is going to try to say, listen, man, I love God's people, but that doesn't mean I have to see them every week or I don't have to be around them. I can love them and, and, and not have much to do with them. Ladies, I want you to answer me yes or no real loud after this. Help me preach this. Let, let, let me know, would this work? Answer me yes or no. For me to tell my wife, uh, yeah, babe, um, you know, I, I love you, but that doesn't mean I want to be around you. Go ahead, ladies. Yes or no? I love you, but I don't want to be around you, you know? I want to hang out. I want to hang out with my bros and uh, you know watch TV and eat boneless chicken wings. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but listen, man, that, that's not going to work. That no, <laughs> no is the answer clearly, um, and, and it shouldn't work because it sounds real dumb once you actually say it out of your mouth, right? So here's the thing, man. If you love God's people, seriously, you're going to want to be around them. If I love my wife, I'm going to want to be around her. That's not to say I'll never go eat chicken wings with the guys, but that, I'm not going to want to do that every night. Right? I love my wife. I want to spend time with her. I want to hold her hand and hug her, and we'll stop right there. Okay? <laughs> if you love God's people, you'll want to be around them. And, and, and the opportunities for that <clears throat> are things like community group. Um, we gather together <laughs> weekly in God's assembly. Uh, Mike Herman Kane, nine nine nine, baby. Community group, community group. Um, but also, I'm always blessed when when I see, am invited to, and, and know about when you guys just get together informally. Nobody has to, you know, prod you into associate. It's just clear that you love each other and you just want to be around each other. And so, if somebody says, "Hey, man, I've got a grill and and, and something to throw on it. Just everybody come. Um, I just want to be around you. Love you guys. It's a joy for us to spend time together. And so, there's a lot of that that you see happen as well, and that's healthy and that's right. And that's good. And it's a good indicator, according to 1 John uh, chapter 3 here, that you've passed from death to life. If you love the brethren. Verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, this... This scripture is likely an echo of Jesus' teaching in Matthew five. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus, it, you should go read that, and, and you should read it often because Jesus, there, he's like he is just roasting us with this series of statements that start with, "You've heard it said," and then he'll go on to say, for example, like he'll say, uh, in, as it pertains to this, um, "You've heard it said that you should you should not murder, but I say, you hate your brother." you may as well have murdered him. He'll he'll say stuff like, um, you know, uh, you've heard it said to to, uh, love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemies. And what he's doing over and over again with all these you've heard it said statements, every single one of them, what he's doing is he's teaching us that the opposite of the way we act most of the time is true. Most of the time the way we act, we think that because grace has made us no longer underneath the law that we think that we can live in a more lax way because I'm I'm under grace. I'm under grace. It doesn't matter. I have forgiveness. The blood of Jesus flows and so I will be forgiven. I need to be less conscious of my attitude, less uh, aware of my actions. Grace, grace, grace. And what Jesus is doing over and over, he said, you heard it said. He, he even says at the beginning, the ancients said it this way. But here, I'm here to tell you, part of what Jesus' mission to do was come and give us some corrective lenses to see. The law was a tutor. It started to help you to understand the way that God the Father thinks and what he demands of us. But I'm here to help you a little bit see beyond what it is you already understand. I know you get that you should love your neighbor. I'm telling you this, let me take it a next step further. You got to love your enemies too. And what he's doing again and again is he's establishing the fact that the the expectations of grace are not lower than law. They're higher. Because they flow out of not obedience to this written upon a stone tablet. It flows out of the response. We have the entirety of the gospel. We've got the whole story. We get to obey out of a response to the finished work of Christ. And so, yes, there should be an uptick in every level. Our obedience comes out of gratitude for the finished work of Jesus, not just because we're afraid that God's going to have us drug out of the camp and stoned. Grace expects more than law. Right, so uh, this, you know, here you you amen there. So here, I've got you going. Now, now now let's let's crash the plane and get some of you mad. See, some of you apply this with um, tithing. Tithing's not in the New Testament. Thank you, Bible scholar. That's great. You know what? It probably you're right. The the word tithe is not necessarily used in in the New Testament. But following the same line of thinking, okay, if if underneath the law the tithe was the requirement. But now what I have is an understanding that the whole thing, that whole deal was a setup just to lead me to the beauty of the gospel. What should my giving reaction be? Well, um, New Testament doesn't say tithe. Old Testament was, you know, first 10% of what you got belongs to God. Well, now that I know that Jesus came, lived the perfect life I never could, then died in my place for my sins, and then rose again victorious over death and invites me by faith to be a part of the family of God, my response to that should be Whatever I've got in my pocket, no. I would say, as with everything else, grace requires more. I believe I should give more than what the law requires as a response to what God has done. See, I told you you wouldn't amen as much on that one (laughs) because now I'm talking about your money, right? And for some of you, you got money on your jersey. It might be in a small subtitle underneath Jesus, but it's still there trying to creep up, trying to vie for your affection, Listen, man, I don't, I don't say stuff like that because I thought, ooh, this will be good. I bet I can get it. I bet I, I bet I can get them to give more and we'll have bigger offerings if if I can show them that grace requires more than law, and so that means they should give more. That's not, listen, man, I love you. God's gonna supply every single need for this ministry. I don't have to try to sit up here and work and get creative and try to bend people's arm to give. You listen to me. The, the, the primary big ways that God has supplied for this ministry has been out of places that we could not have even possibly known would have come. God will do as he sees fit. I'm not, I'm not telling you that to alleviate you because here's the bottom line. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. I tell you what I'm telling you because I love you and I want you to walk in God's blessing. I want you to, I want you to understand and I want you to see the flow of blessing that comes in obeying God with your finances. You can always tell who the object or what the object of your worship is by looking at your calendar and your checkbook. Well, some of you don't even know what that is. What is it? Debit card statement? Um, checkbooks, it's these paper things you used to have where you would write your name and the amount, and it was, it was cool, but, you know, they're pretty much gone. So um, some archaeological digs, you can find them. Um, but you, you get what I'm talking about. You, you look at your bank account. You, you look at, at what it is. Where does your money go? It, it gives you a good indicator of, of who you worship. That was fun, wasn't it? Good. Grace requires more than law. I, 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 should, hope that, um, I should hope that I give more than the person that, that lived underneath Levitical law. I should hope that my gratitude causes me to give more in every way. I should be more generous because I have a, a bigger understanding of the whole I have the all of the word. I see the whole plan. Not only do I know, not only do I know what God did, I know what He's gonna do. I've got the whole deal, man. I've got Revelation 2 that tells me, not Revelation chapter 2, Revelation also. I've got that that tells me ultimately we win. We win. And ultimately it doesn't matter. I don't need to store up treasure on this earth and try to hedge myself against whatever because at the end of the day, the, the, the very worst thing that could happen to me on this planet is I die. What would he do? I won. For the Christian, death is the final victory, man. And I'm not saying don't save and don't be wise with your money. Please understand understand that. God is clear in the scriptures that we should be wise. Um, A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Yes, yes, yes. However, many of us, let's just be honest, are sinful with our money. We don't think about giving and we don't connect it to whether or not that is an indicator of who our God is. Grace requires more than law. Okay? Hallelujah. I knew you'd like that. Okay, that was verse 15. Uh, And now we're at verse 16. Here's what it says. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And here's the reaction. Here's here's our like, kind reaction. He laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Okay, so here's what's going on here. There's so much to say, and I got to do a good job at not trying to say everything I could say about this. First of all, this to me... And I think to anybody paying attention, this is the clearest definition we have of love in the universe, okay? The most authoritative at at, at the very least. Um, There are many people that would try to um, elaborate on what love is There are those, th- I mean throughout time The greatest thinkers, they've tackled this, right? You've got philosophers and, and, and now scientists I mean, a scientist would tell you Love is nothing more than, than in the firing of neurons In the brain, the coalescing of certain chemicals That make you get that butterfly feeling Love is simply a, a natural process As is everything else It's not true Here's how we know what love is When we seek to try to understand it We can't, science won't ca- answer the question for us only god who later on and I can't get started on this now god who is love gets to define love and he does it here for us there are many 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 that have that have spoke on the subject and they've fallen very short jesus demonstrated what love is perfectly and he did it at the cross here's how we know love Here's how we have a chance with finite minds to understand the depth of what love is, something that is tied to the very character and nature of God who is creator. Here's how you can try to understand it as you seek to wrap your mind around it, stare at the cross, stare at what is done, in, in Jesus sacrificing himself there, and understand this is love. And so what do we see there? And part of the problem in this culture, love is, is I, I believe love is the, is the most tragically cheapened word uh, in all of our vocabulary, and and here's the deal: Greeks did better than us. If you go through the scriptures and you and you read it in the Greek, you'll see this distinction, this understanding that there are there are different kinds of affection. So there were different words for like phileo would be a brotherly affection, or you had eros, which was like romantic, sexual type of love, that type of relationship. And here, the the love that we see. Uh, Described in this scripture, the, the, the word it used is agape, and that's most simply, it, it's, it's the God kind of love. It is expressed, and it is described, and it is exemplified in selflessness. That is the main characteristic you will understand out of agape love, because it's not, it expects nothing in return. It's the kind of love that, that God gave to us. He went first with, with, with really no incentive other than, other than his love for us to pour out his love on us. And so the problem is that we don't have those different words. And so that's why, <laughs> that's why things like I love nachos could be said or uh, what, whatever. Um, you know, we, we, we throw that word onto everything. And I realize some people just think, come on, bro, you're, you're splitting hairs. It's not that big of a deal. What I'm saying is if you look in, in, in ancient, all kinds of ancient writings, look back, you will not see other than very minute examples, and it doesn't even, it, what, what you see happening in the writing of the New Testament, it's like they had all these other words for love, and then the writers of the New Testament understood, okay, I've got to try to explain to people what, what God's love is like, and so that is where you see the origination of the word agape, it's like, yes, there's brotherly love, yes, there's romantic love, yes, there's th- these other kinds of affection, None of those quite encompass how deep and wide and beautiful the love of God is. So we need a different word. That's where agape came from. And what I'm saying is we need a word. When we describe to people what God has done through Christ, we need to be able to say this is love. And so I would encourage you. Look, man, if you really like nachos, say you really like nachos. And, and it's, it'll, it's good because it will help you use adjectives better and be a better master of the English language because you'll have to stop yourself from just saying what normally would flow up out of your mouth and figure out a way to describe, other than the word love, how much you really like something. Okay, so you'll all be English masters, plus we won't cheapen that word because in English that's the one we have. To describe what God has done for us through and in Christ, it, it, It's love. To describe what it is we are called to return to God and to give to others, it's love. And so we, we need we need to be able to distinguish that from, from all other forms of affection. I really like some things, but I'm only supposed to love, I'm supposed to love God, I'm supposed to love you. Parentheses, it, it, it's locked off. And it's awesome because... I know many of you have small children and in my own uh, little Lucy, you know, she'll be watching cartoons and I've heard you guys t- tell stories. We're trying to, it, it, man, in our culture, the word love is just its just batted around like a beach ball with, with no reverence whatsoever but we are. We're trying to train up our children to consider it more precious than we have in previous generations. I know some of you, your kids, will, just like mine, are watching cartoons and they'll say, I love basketball and, uh, Lucy will, I mean, and Lucy zones in on some TV, all right? So she's like in the zone, but that jogs her out of it, and she'll turn over and look at me, Daddy, and say, he doesn't love basketball. I'll say, no, baby, he doesn't. You want ice cream? (laughs) Because the God-Daddy heart in me is like, thank you, Jesus, man. You see training your children up that that you're getting that root in them young, man. So it blesses me. Amen. So, you you want to understand what love is? You you got to look at the cross. And my, well, let's just keep going. And that's a big deal because we need to understand what love is because it's it's the high point of all that we're called to as followers of Christ. You boil it down, our mission is love. It's to love God and love people. This this set of verses and moving on through um, chapter four is why we took the risk to name this church Love City Church. Yes, I've had people say, is that a dating site? And I think actually it is. Um, So that's awesome. Um, However, I I just asked God for some way, even in the name of this church, in a very intentional and missional way, that every time we said who we are, that our mission, that we were reminded of it. And wherever we are, we, we are called to love the people in that place as an outflowing of our love for God and his love for us. We're supposed to love this city. We're supposed to love everybody where you're at, even your enemies. And, and we could spend the rest of our life praying and asking God to help us have a further glimpse of what that means and help us to do better at it by his Holy Spirit and we would not waste our time. Verse 17 explains a little bit, because verse 16 says that um, our response should be that we should lay down our lives for the brethren. And so you could think that the, the only way um, for us to really fulfill this scripture is to do exactly what Jesus did, and that is you know, to jump in front of a bullet for somebody, or you know in some way physically lay down your life for someone. Verse 17 helps us understand that that's, ultimately, I think, yes, that's true. If If I had an opportunity to to jump in front of something to save you, I should regard my life as less than yours, yes, and everybody and that 's the scriptures say that I should regard myself as less important than you yes, that's part of what love demands. my family's more important than me that 's why i don't just go do what I want to do and have fifteen thousand hobbies and spend my time doing whatever all the time uh, when I have free time i'm I'm spending it with my family because they're more important than me this church family is, is more important than what I want to do. So then if i if I got any other time, I'm trying to figure out what your needs are and, and praying for you and trying to spend time with you. And that if all of us were doing that, all of us would be served and loved. And I know that we are, many of us are, many of you get it, and I'm so thankful to be a part of this church because uh, calls like this, they're, they're it's, it's, a, it's a call to lay down your life Here's what, verse, here's what verse 17 says. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? So it's not so much a call for me to die for you so that you may live, even though if that opportunity came up, I think I should take it. But really what it is, it's a, it's a call to live for others as opposed to live for myself. We see that in verse 17. If a brother has needs and you've got something that can meet that need, and it's not always this guy's hungry, I have a hot dog. It's sometimes it's that guy's lonely and broken, and I've got time to stop, pray for, and love on that person. Sometimes it's, it's meeting that kind of need. The needs are many. The range is great. However, what the call of verse 16 is to lay down our life for the brethren is that all the time we are considering what is most helpful to somebody else as opposed to what is most convenient for me. And here's the beautiful thing, it's like marriage. What we're called to do in marriage, I am called to lay down my life for my wife to care way more about what she needs and thinks and wants than what I do, and and I'm supposed to serve her. Here's the beauty. If we both do that, both people's needs and wants are taken care of, the gospel's exemplified because we see selflessness of the kind that we see with Jesus on the cross, but we are called as the church at large to do the same thing. I should care more about what you need than what I need. And if you do that for me, guess what? Everybody's taken care of. And the gospel is displayed. And the world goes, that's odd. Somebody not all about them. Somebody not just about getting theirs. Somebody that, it seems, they care more about what other people need or want than what they care about themselves. It sounds weird even in this place where we talk about it all the time because it's that odd for people to live that way and we can only do it by the help and power of God's Holy Spirit. By continuing to fill ourselves with the truth of the word like this, we have to continually seek God's help that our mind be reprogrammed from a a survival, um, self-preservation mentality to a I'm willing to lay down my life no matter what that means every day in the service and the loving of other people. Amen. And and it it doesn't have to be, I'm speaking kind of in profound terms, but it could be as simple as, I'm on my way, I'm in a rush, my need is to get there quickly, but there's somebody on the side of the road with a flat tire. Whose need is more important? It's not all about everybody, You know, I'm not trying to turn you into the CVS Samaritans, and it's not all about changing tires, it's about in every situation, what's more important to you? What you need want, or what that person needs and wants. Marriages under attack by the devil, marriages that are struggling, listen to me. This, and this is why, over and over and over again, I tell you, all and and, and we'll get to it again. It, it, this this principle will, will weave its way back around. All of the things. because we could we could do an 85-week study on what godly marriage looks like, or I could convince you to love like Jesus. I could go through all the scriptures that talk about marriage over and over again and ring them out and get all the truth, yes, but I think what the scriptures tell us is, and not even not to do that, but ultimately, you could circumvent all that, understand how Jesus loved and do that. Your marriage will be fixed. you just serve each other instead of just taken from each other. You come into a situation looking to, to be humble and, and to lay down your life for them and, and that is going to cause them to want to do that. And so, But then you get into, oh, well, who goes first? Listen, I, I, I serve, but they don't. Look, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, um, the call of God for you men is to, is to love your wives like Christ loved the church. So I don't even care if she acts right when you do that. You love her like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love us? He laid his life down for us. So you do that, and you keep doing that, and eventually... Be, you're going to be so sweet, so loving, and so much like Jesus, she's not going to be able to help it. She's going to fall in and, and love you in the same way. And some of you, some of you ladies, you're, you, you're already going first because your husband's not acting that way or he hasn't acted that way. Um, I understand that that's hard. That's not the way it should be. But don't give up. Count it joy to suffer for the name of Christ and keep loving like Jesus does. And you'll see that love vanquish, the the hate and anger, whatever else, the selfishness that's trying to work its way in there and undo your marriage. It's less about dying for someone and more about living for others than ourselves. Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth, right? Simply, put your money where your mouth is. Don't run around here and, and talk like... Yeah, um, you know, I'm going to love folks and lay my life down. And then the opportunity comes up. It's like, oh, but this time, it's, it's just this isn't a good day for me. This isn't a good day for me to, you know, do what's less convenient for me and, and, and better for somebody else. Hit, hit, hit me again tomorrow. Catch, catch me on a good day. No. Was there, was there a good day for Jesus to get beat beyond recognition, have his beard ripped out, and then carry his own cross uphill and then get nailed to it? Die, bleed out, have a spear shoved in his side just to prove he was dead. Was there, Is there ever a good day for that? No, it's a bad day all, all the time. But he didn't care. He loved us. He loved us so much that it caused him to shed self-preservation, which is a natural human instinct, but we're not natural. That's the thing. We're supernatural. We live by faith, not by sight. So we got to follow in his footprints and do what he did. Okay? Verse 19 and 20. So put your money where your mouth is, is verse 18, bottom line. Don't just talk a big game, but follow through. Verse 19 and 20 uh, says, We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. Uh, in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Some of us have been taught to follow our hearts um, by Disney movies and well-meaning poets and, and songwriters, um, you know, <clears throat> Aladdin and Jasmine on the carpet. Some of you are too young to remember that, but they're were, they were teaching you follow your heart, you know. Belle, follow your heart. All the Disney princesses, they want you to, they want you to follow your heart. And I understand that that sounds very nice. However, uh, it's a bad idea. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful and sick. Your heart will lie to you. That's why we need to know the word. Because sometimes even our own flesh will rise up against us and try to deceive us. If your heart is telling you you should sleep with someone you're not married to because God understands and that you really love them, your heart is wrong. Your heart is being deceitful. The word trumps your heart, God's word trumps how you feel. We submit to the word. We tell your heart to be quiet. Sometimes false guilt and condemnation will try to nullify our effectiveness as witnesses and ambassadors of God's goodness. So not only is there temptation that rises up out of our own fleshly desires, sometimes um, our own heart will try to condemn us, and that's what's being said here, but here's what we need to realize. In the same way that the Word teaches us, just because your heart's telling you to go fornicate, that doesn't mean it's now, uh, well, my heart I'm following my heart, so now it's somehow, it's okay, because my heart said so. No, in the same way that your heart may try to condemn you before God and bring condemnation against you that would that would nullify you as a witness. Some, some of you know what I'm talking about. You struggle all the time with the fact that you were a sinner or that you have struggled or failed recently and up out of you will come this sense of condemnation that you are not that you are not worthy to bear the name of Christ and so that you should be quiet, you should turn your jersey inside out or not wear it at all. Don't show anybody you're on team Jesus because you're not worthy to carry that name. That's And here's what Romans 8 says. There's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus defeated the need for you to be condemned. You don't need to be condemned. Convicted, yes, but here's the beauty of conviction. It brings us to repentance. We repent. God helps us by his grace to move on and and sin less, right? Right? condemnation, you just sit there and continue to stew and think about how bad you are and how you failed and how this means that you're no longer able to represent Jesus. Listen, there, nobody, nobody is perfect, including Christians. And I've told you time and again, that doesn't mean we, we get off the hook. That means we are all universally in big trouble. Nobody's perfect. God is, and perfection is required to be in relationship with him. That's why Jesus had to come, because none of us were going to pull off perfection. We're all vibrantly aware of that. Don't let your heart condemn you. Don't let your heart tell you that you you can't go into your workplace and have a witness because you jacked up last week. Repent. Move on. And get back on mission for Jesus. No condemnation. Are you in Christ? No condemnation. Amen. That doesn't mean we take sin lightly. It doesn't mean we don't care. It means we repent, and by God's grace, we do better. Amen. It's a good word for me because I'm prone to mess up. I know most of you have it nailed down already, but I need that. I need to know that I'm forgiven. Okay, verse 23. Oh, sorry, no, verse 22. And whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Uh, we see that um, part, of, part of loving people... Uh, and, and you see this also, uh, this is also an echo of another teaching of Jesus that um, our prayers can be hindered if our relationships with people are not right. Jesus told us that if I'm unwilling to forgive you, that, that my prayers cannot be answered, that I will block, like, like grace flows from, let's say grace flows from heaven like rain. You see this illustration, unforgiveness, bitterness in my heart, refusing to forget you, or, or to forgive you, is me taking an umbrella, opening it up, and blocking that grace, it's not that God all of a sudden stops showering grace down upon us. It's that we have the ability by our sinful attitudes and our, and our inability to love people enough to forgive them to, to throw up an umbrella and block grace from my life. Here's the thing. I am, I am totally aware I can't afford that. I will need grace before I get out of this building in the next 30 minutes because I, I will probably have a thought that doesn't totally line up with the word and I'll need to repent of that. Or I'll be frustrated or something. And that's what I'm saying. That I can't afford, because I don't want to forgive you, to not have grace and forgiveness in my own life. And I need need God to hear my prayers and answer them. And so I need to be walking in love. And that's part of what's being said here. That's that's tied together. Uh, Verse 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Verse 24 tells us that not only do we have these indicators, do we love the brethren. There are things the scriptures give us over and over, fruit by which to judge the tree, Good fruit, if, if, I, if I love the brethren, if I love being around God's people, it's a great indicator that I've passed from death to life. So I have that, but also I have this internal witness from the Spirit, and that's what's being spoken of here in verse 24. Like, even, I have all those external indicators, but there's, there's something, something changed on the inside. of I me mean, when Jesus came and took this heart of stone and made it into a heart of flesh, like, I, I just, I know I belong to him. It's different. We have the witness of the Spirit, because now, because of what Jesus did, now the Spirit of God, do you understand that this is, do you know why we don't have temples where you go and there's a curtain separating you from from the Spirit of God? Do you know why we don't roll with that old system? Because what God has decided to do now, because of what Jesus did, He can now inhabit us. We are called the new covenant temple of the Holy Spirit, that God literally comes and dwells in us, His people, which was the original intention anyways. Jesus took what was broken and fixed it. And so we have this internal witness of, of the Spirit in us um, that in those moments of doubt confirming, yes, you do belong to Jesus. Verse 23, I think, is it's an example, like I was talking about earlier, of, of boiling it down. It says, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. See, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it seems that what John is doing here is he's saying, here's, here's the commandment. Here's the commandment you've heard from the beginning as he began this set of verses. Here's what you need to know from God. And it's pretty short, right? Because if you look at, if you look at the Old Testament, when, when God came down and gave to Moses, here's what people need to know. It was 613 laws, and commands 613. Move fast forward to Micah. You see, you see the intention of God to begin to pare this down and get us down to one thing or two things to focus on to give us this boiled down essence of what it is He expects of us. So we're getting closer. You go to Micah and you see that there's three He says to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. So we go from 613 back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You get up to Micah, we're paring it down to Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. And then we cross from those prophetic books, we get into the New Testament, and then we see Jesus uh, in, in a couple different places it's recorded. The, the scribes come and, and they say, teacher, what what's what's the greatest commandment? What is the thing we need to focus on more? So King Jesus is given the opportunity to boil it down. And that's what I'm trying to get you to understand about this. Our, our marriage problems, our sin problems, all the, the things that we... That we struggle with over and over again, this, these two commandments, it, it answers it. It wraps it up and it boils it down. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's funny because he was asked for one. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And we see here again, you can't pull apart loving God and loving people. They go together. Jesus, give me one commandment. He's, I can't do that. i got to give you two. Because these, you can't boil this down any farther. You can't make it any simpler. This is all the way down to the basic. Here's what I need from you, my people. Love me and love each other. Amen. It, in Romans thirteen eight, it, it spells it out for us. It, it says, uh, owe oh, oh, no man anything but to love him. And he says, "If you," he goes on to say, look, man if you love somebody, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to covet what they have. You're not going to steal from them. You're surely not going to murder them. You love your wife really. You love your husband really. You're not going to commit adultery on them. And so what he's showing us is to love after the example of Christ, it it breaks the back of sin. There's no room for sin to creep in when we are overtaken and filled with the love of Jesus. When we love, when our affections and our 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 allegiance is pointed towards Christ in, in response to what he's done. And the outflow of that is that we love others. There's no room left. Temptation becomes silliness. In the sight, and in, 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 when you look at the other opportunity, of course, we're always still going to be tempted. We're going to have that, that little voice coming, whether it's our own flesh tempting us or our enemy who wants to stand against God and stand against us, if he comes to say, you know, you should do this contrary to God's word, whatever the sin is, it doesn't matter what sin you hold up that's being offered to you as an alternative to obeying God. When you realize that you, are, you have the opportunity to, to love God and to love people, when you have an opportunity to affect the eternity of people because you're on mission as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, I will, I, and you actually, the problem is we don't hold those up. The problem is it's not in the front of our mind. When that temptation comes, I'm not thinking about the fact, am I gonna have to set down the mission of God? Am I gonna have to set down the love of God to take up this temptation and to partake of this sin? But if we did, if every time we said, I could, I could go do this sin, whatever it is, or I could be on mission, uh, being a part of people's eternity being changed, going from death to life. What sin could ever come and even close to measure to the opportunity of being a part of God's people on God's mission? Nothing compares. Any sin, any temptation sounds silly. I would never ever, because I love God and I love people, trade my own selfish desires in and nullify myself or make myself less effective to help somebody meet Jesus. Do we think like that? That's that's the key. Is this in the front of our mind? Not just here sitting underneath the teaching of God's word, but in the middle of the week when loving people is hard because they have mouths and opinions. Right? Amen. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So we're down to two commandments. To love God, to love people. And those are, these are a result of believing in the name of Jesus Christ. If you pass from death to life, if you become a child of God, what he begins to cultivate you is a love for him and a love for people. And that's, that's why our mission is defined first by those two things. Our mission here. At Love City is the way that we accomplish the vision. Our vision is to see as many people as possible meet Jesus because we're convinced that's the only life worth living. We want as many people as possible to meet Jesus. Our mission is the way we accomplish that vision and our mission is to love God, love people, and make disciples. It can't get any simpler. It's the boiled down version. If you would just, I promise you, if you will just ask God every day, help me love you and help me to love people, Many, many, many of the things that you worry about, they would fall to the wayside and be solved in the walking out of those two commands. God boils it down. It's not as complicated as we make it. But we have to understand what love is to do this, right? It can't be this, this jacked up, watered down, it's an emotion, you know, whatever weird deal, I, I think, because of what I've been exposed to, as far as how I define, I've got to define love the way God defines it. And that's why we spend so much time working on that. That's why it works its way into much of what we Sometimes I know you guys are like how did he get to what how, why is he talking about love again? Right? We're, th- these scriptures have nothing to do with that. But yes it does. Yes it does. They all do. All Genesis to Revelation man if, if, you, if you try to take out this loving God and loving people man it, it that's the key that unlocks the rest of the scriptures. That makes makes sense that helps us to understand what God is doing here and what he expects of us. I can't understand the rest of the scriptures out of, out of the, the context and the grid of, of love. That's it. That's the key. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. God, I, just, I pray against, right now, the tendency that humans have to realize that they've heard something and thus think that we've got it all figured out. God, help us to realize that uh, our eyes could pass over the verses of Scripture thousands of times um, throughout the course of our life and you could speak to us in a different way every single time. Lord, help us to be very aware that we have but scratched the surface of what it means to lay down your life for somebody else. We have but scratched the surface of understanding what you mean when you call us to love you, when you tell us that you love us, and that as a result of that, that we should love others. Lord, none of us are good at loving our enemies. We all struggle with that. We need your grace and mercy to walk out these two commandments, these key commandments, God. May we we see other sins vanquished and defeated as we love you and we love others. God, may your love be so vibrant here in and amongst us. God, may there be such love in the way that we take care of each other and sacrifice for each other. God, may that be appealing to the world. May it not be that we we have the most attractional ministry philosophy. May it not be that we, we have the best lights or the, the best production, God, but may your love flowing in and through us to each other, may it be attractive to those that are not in your house, and may they... May they flock to be a part of the family of God because they see true love in a way that they've never seen anywhere else. God, we need your anointing to do that because we admit we are selfish by nature. Naturally, we are about taking care of ourselves. God, we ask you to break that in us. Make us like you. Help us not to be about preserving ourselves, but help us to see the beauty of serving others. And God, for some of us, right now, I just feel, Lord, by your Holy Spirit that you You're prompting me to to pray this out, and and God, I just ask by your grace that you would break the lie in our minds that tells us that serving others is going to be without joy. Some of us, Lord, I know that we're struggling. We think about a life in in, in service to others and caring more about others than we do about ourselves, and we think that, man, it's just that's going to be a drag. That's going to be a heavy weight and a burden to bear, but God, help us to realize and help us remember that it is always more blessed to give than to receive. And help us to understand, Lord God, that as we operate this way with each other, that it's not just a one-way pouring out, but that, that that love is flowing back and forth, and so that in that we are all taken care of. Please be glorified in our love for you and our love for each other. May you be made famous, Lord, because Love City